excited today. As we start on the book of James, I would encourage you to turn to the book of James. I'm going to be preaching line by line, section by section through James until close to Easter. So buckle up. Here we go. I have always wanted to preach this book. Uh, I've also been wanting to write a small commentary on it. So as I'm going through the texts, I'm studying it, I'm teaching it in Bible study, I'm preaching it, but I'm also trying to write down a lot of that as I go through. And uh, so, exciting. Uh, I'm finding this book very challenging and interesting. Uh, James is a book of action. In fact, Martin Luther hated the book of James. Martin Luther called James the book of straw, and he did not think it should be even included in the Bible Because he felt it was really contrary to the doctrine of grace as he taught it. Um, But most scholars have not agreed with Martin Luther's strong assessment. Uh, I think as you'll see though, it does have a little bit of a different emphasis than Paul does. Um, James is the book of doing. It's the book of action. James talks about how do you live this life. If the gospel is true. And in fact he's not even that into trying to explain the gospel. He only mentions Jesus Christ by name twice in the book. But as you see he's going to be talking about how to live life. If Jesus truly is Lord as he claims he is in the first verse. Now one other comment before we get into the text. A lot of times when commentators and when when people preaching talk about the text, they they come at it from a real position of suspicion. They assume the text can't be real, and so they want to just dissect it to figure out sort of the meaning behind it. The approach I'm going to take here is very different. I want to approach this text from the idea of sign or symbolism. What I'm interested in is not what is the point of the text, My question for this series is going to be, what are the pictures in the text? And you'll find that James uses a lot of pictures, a lot of images that are meant to stick with you and sort of, you have to sort of chew on them. I don't know if that makes sense. I wish I could sometimes boil James down to one sentence and you could just remember it or memorize it. But that's not how James is. In fact, that's not how the Bible most of the time is. The Bible is really about pictures and stories that you have to chew on, that sort of haunt you, that sort of stick with you throughout the week and start to shape you. Most of the things that shape you in your life aren't facts. They're experiences. Or they're things that you saw somebody else experience. So you you may have experienced them vicariously, but still it's based on experience, not on facts. James is not about facts, and we're going to not preach them that way. In fact, I'm going to preach today on seven images in verses 1 through 18. So, and you're you're going to see them because they're going to be up on the screen. Here's image number one. Okay, image number one. It's very simple. Comes right out of James chapter 1, verse 1. You'll just have to follow along because I'm going to not read the whole text. I'm going to read it piece by piece. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ... To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So ends this letter by this man, James. If you didn't have that, you might not even know it was a letter. It doesn't have any of the the specific greetings that Paul would write, for example. It just jumps in. Greetings, here we go. 
A lot of question as to who James was. Most scholars and most in the early church especially believed him to be James the just or James the brother of Jesus. And we know from the story that Jesus had other siblings and that James was one of them. And while Jesus was alive, he did not believe in Jesus as Lord. Okay, if he was your brother, you might have trouble believing too, right? I used to draw in the dirt with a stick with him. There's no way he's the son of God. I know him. But later, James comes to faith and in the book of Acts becomes a major leader in the church. And, and for, for most of uh, Christian history, that's been the general consensus was that it was James the just. But James is not the only James. There's James, the brother of John. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. There's all kinds of, uh, there's another James listed somewhere in the New Testament that we know very little to nothing about. And if you notice, the text doesn't actually say who James is. It just says James, servant of God. I don't have a lot of reason to disagree with it being James the Just. It just doesn't actually say that in the text. What's more interesting about the name James is this. Does James sound like a very Greek or Hebrew name to you? No, no. What, what, what country do you immediately associate with the name James? England. How many? England, right? It's true. James is an English name. In Greek, the name of the author of this book is Jacob. This is the book of Jacob, not the book of James. Now, through language over time, the name James becomes a variation of the name Jacob in the English language. But what really happens is there's a guy named King James who sponsors the creation of an English Bible called the King James Version. Most of you remember it, right? Thee, thou, ought, all those kind of words. And so what they did was they used the English name James wherever there's Jacob in the New Testament. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Now, if it's not James, so let's, let's back up from James for a second. If it's Jacob, who was Jacob? Jacob was the father of 12 sons. He was the son of Isaac, who was the grandson of Abraham. And he had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, look at verse 1 again. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. See, I wonder, and most commentators don't pick up on this, but I wonder if this is a little bit of a fatherly letter. If it's Jacob kind of writing to his children. This could just mean the 12 tribes, the Jews that are all over the place. Paul would use a phrase like that. But I wonder if this is a fatherly letter. And don't we as fathers have certain expectations for our kids? We want our kids to behave a certain way. And if this is a fatherly letter, it might make sense that James wants his children to behave a certain way. I'm going to continue to call it the book of James because that's what we all do. But I think if you read Jacob and then read the 12 tribes, you start thinking of this a little bit as a father wanting his sons, his children to behave a certain way. He doesn't name himself as James, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't brag about himself. He wants to be known as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shouldn't that be a great example for all of us? Who always want to name our credentials. But James just jumps in. And so image number two. We'll get this out of verses two through four. Count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of many kinds. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, depending on the English translation that you're using, there's three words that you see pop up here. One might be testing, one might be trial, and one might be temptation. In Greek, they're all the same word. They just have kind of nuanced meaning based on the context. And so the English translators try to capture that. The essence of a trial, what a trial really boils down to, is discovering what is genuine. Discovering what is genuine. So when you go to court, the way it's supposed to work, is one side presents their case, and the other side presents their case, and a judge looks at it and says, okay, this case is genuine, or this case is genuine, and makes a decision. Or neither case is genuine. Trials find out what is genuine. So that's the common time that we use the word trial. We use the word test in different ways, right? How many of you have had a stress test, a blood test, a math test, right? Sometimes we have tests that sort of test, but what is it really testing? It's testing what's genuine. What's really going on in your blood? What's really going on in your heart? What's really going on in your ability to do division? What's really going on in your ability to spell? That's a spelling test. Searching for what's genuine. So when things come along in our lives that push us, that press us, that test us, is trying to find out what is genuine within us. That's what goes on when we go through trials. The, the test case for this is when Abraham is tested in the Old Testament, right? Is he going to sacrifice his only son or not? The question, though, is, does God do that so that he knows? I don't think so. I think God knows what Abraham's going to do. He's God. But sometimes we go through difficult things so that we know who we are. That God uses those things sometimes to produce in us steadfastness. Produce is a word we use so much we forget that it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a tree producing fruit. For growth. That when we go through difficult times, though it's hard, though it's challenging, James wants us to be joyful in the middle of them, which is crazy. Be joyful in the middle of them because God is producing something in you. He's producing something. Something is coming about that is steadfastness. And when it is there, you're complete, perfect, lacking nothing. Why? Because if anything gets taken away from you, or if anything gets added to you, it's not going to bother you. It'll roll off of you because you have this steadfastness, this endurance. Image number three, starting in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Wisdom in the Old Testament is a God-given trait that means applied knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to get through life's situations. Okay? If you have knowledge, how many of you know really smart people that can't balance their checkbook 
that forget stuff all the time, right? They're really smart, but they can't get through life because they don't have a lot of wisdom. Wisdom is something that God gives to his people to get through trials in life. So if you're going through a difficult time, ask God for wisdom. Ask God to show you the way through. But James wants to be sure if you ask God, and you should ask God, that you trust him to do it. Otherwise, you're double-minded. What does he mean by double-minded? Well, I mean, he didn't know what multiple personality disorder would have been. But if you've ever been somebody who's going through a really difficult time, they almost seem like that, right? It's like we, we, we're like, God, give me wisdom. I really trust you. You know what, God, I'm going to actually worry about this for a little while longer. I'll, I'll hang on to it. Lord, here, here it is. Take this from me. Lord, I'm going to stress and work like crazy to get through it. And we can start getting this sort of two of us, and we get unstable. And the image that he uses for this is such a vivid image, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I grew up a lot in, uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, and Erie is set on Lake Erie, but, but the city itself is on a bay that a peninsula sort of creates. Some of you have gone up there before. And the wind can get really going in there. And, and the wind can sometimes create a wave, but then not let the wave crash. But as the, wave, the wind whips around, this wave starts getting tossed back and forth. It won't crash, won't stop, but just sort of changes direction all the time. If you've ever been around somebody who's really stressed, like marathon of anxiety, anybody who's really lost someone, they can be like that, just tossed about. A little thing like a rainy day throws you off. A little innocent comment from somebody throws you off. These are the kind of people that can't make decisions. They can't, they can't pick something on a menu because they just feel so tossed by everything. That's how you get when you don't trust God. That's how you can get when you have trouble giving it to Him. You still want to hang on to it yourself. It's hard to give it to God. It's hard to trust. But if you don't, you're going to be unstable. Tossed around by every little thing. Image number four. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises and it's scorching heat uh, and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Poverty and wealth are probably two of the most difficult trials that people can go through. We think about it as poverty, right? Nobody wants to go through poverty. But if you know a lot of people who are really rich, really rich, you see them in, in the tabloids, right? All their dirty laundry is aired out for everybody. How many suicides do we see every year of very popular, very wealthy people? God has a way of sort of evening it out. And, and I'm not anti-wealth. I'm not anti-building up that thing. I'm just saying it can be an extra burden to carry. The same as poverty does. And so if you're low, boast when God picks you up. And if you're rich, sometimes it's good that God withers you a little bit because he may be protecting you from some of the real burden. James is especially hard on the rich because when he's writing, the rich are really abusing the poor. The Christians are really being abused. Image number five. This is just verse 12. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Bible uses a lot of language of crowns, right? Crowns are for the people who rule. So why does God give us crowns when he deserves crowns? Well, part of the understanding is that we give our crowns back. That's in the Bible. That's in some of our hymns, laying our crowns at his feet. But part of the other understanding is that God rules in this world with us. That he calls us along. Right from the get-go, Adam and Eve are part of maintaining creation. That he invites us into that process. And therefore, he rewards with a crown those who love him and show their love during trials. Do you catch that? It's, it's a crown for those who love him, and you get it when you go through trials. What does that mean? It means you show you love him when you go through trials with steadfastness. If you go through trials and you're all over the place and not trusting God, then, then you've got to ask how much you really love him or how much you just have him when he's good for you. No, we, we need to trust him. We need to remain steadfast and show that we love him in our trials. Image number six. This is my favorite of the images. I'll explain it in a minute. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted we see, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, ha- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown brings forth death. It's easy to say, oh, God is tempting me. God is tempting me. You notice if you get any English Bible out, you're going to see the word tempting here, not testing. Because we know that God sometimes tests us. God sometimes puts us through difficult things. You can't deny that when we have stories like Jonah and like Job and like Abraham. But God doesn't tempt us. Temptation is different. Temptation is negative. Temptation involves wanting you to fail, and that never comes from God. It doesn't have to. It can come right from us when our own desires and our own head messes with us. Everybody thinks that that I'm tempted to steal when I see money. No, you're tempted to steal when you desire money. And then when the opportunity comes, that's when you fall into it. You think you're tempted to have an affair when you meet someone you're attracted to. No, you were tempted to have an affair way back when you had the desire to maybe want something else in your relationship and look for it somewhere other than your spouse. Temptation starts here, not out there. It starts here. And the, the image is lured and enticed. Those are fishing terms. It means luring someone, like a fishing lure. This is an alligator snapping turtle. It's not, I actually brought one. So, this is an alligator snapping turtle. Okay, it's not like the turtles, snapping turtles we have around here, which have really big necks. Okay, these are from down south, and uh, they, instead of going after food, wait for food. I'll show you how. There you go. All right, now, if you see his little tongue, you, I'll, I'll hold him later for you too, if you don't, if you can't see it real well. Okay, if you look in there, you can see a little bit on the picture. He has his little tongue. And this, this little red lure, look how he's really dark. There's a bright red spot in his mouth. Okay? That's his lure. And he is the most patient. I mean, you want to 
Uh, he is the most patient animal to feed. He will lure and he will wiggle that tongue and just wait for the fish to line right up. And then as soon as it lines up, then he knows one finger. He watches. He will wait, 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 and then just when the right time is, bam, bites. That's his, that's his lure. It entices the fish to come in. This is what goes on in your own brain. This is where temptation comes from. Your mind gets this desire. And if you let it stick around, if you let it hang there, it will pull you in. And then when you get opportunity, sin happens. In fact, the text is really vivid, right? It conceives sin. I could not quite conceive as the image here, right? Okay? Very, very physical description of what happens when you let, when you let sin in your life, when you hang on to those desires, when you don't flee from them, then it catches you, lures you, entices you, and then it takes. God doesn't tempt us. Temptation really comes from our brains. Okay? And so you know what you got to do? you got to control your minds. you got to ask God to help you. You can't stick with those desires. Those fantasies, those things you want. Because then when temptation comes along, you're going to get caught up in it. Final image, image 7. Do not be deceived, my brothers, verse 16. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of faith, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Don't be deceived. You know what that means? That means it's easy to be deceived. And think that God is putting you through all this stuff. When a lot of it's coming from your own head. And a lot of it comes because life is just difficult. I think that God doesn't... God has a way of not forcing us into all kinds of difficult situations. But, but redeeming them. He kind of takes bad things that happen in our lives. And he says, okay, this is a bad thing. But I'm going to bring some good out of it. I'm going to mature you. And that maturity is not just for you. It's a first fruit. What does that mean? It means it's the start of something. It's the start of something. God doesn't do it. Look at the text. He's the father of life. What are you the father of? Sin. Remember the, the couple of verses before. It talks about your desires conceiving sin. God's the father of light. Is God tossed about by wind on the sea? No, in God there's no variation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the one being whipped around. But God is doing something in you. And you should be joyful. It may stink. We never get to totally understand why God does stuff and why trials happen to us. Maybe we never get to feel like the fruit that was produced is worth all the pain. But we can trust that God still is doing something in us and through us. That maybe as we go through difficulty, somebody else might also be going through difficulty and be strengthened in their faith because of us. Let us pray. Lord, through all kinds of trials in life, we tend to panic. We tend to go through crisis. Be with us. Give us strength. Mature us. Produce something in us. Let us trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.